You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're tuned in to another very merry episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from ESPN.com. And joining us, as always, on this Christmas Eve day is Ben Folks from MMA Junkie and USA Today. Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Feeling festive. I know we got to hurry up and get this thing in the can so you can get off to your grandmother's house, where I understand that there is a, uh, a big shindig brewing. That's right, because I have a family that loves me, while you are a little orphan who's going to sit around here all day with your wife, probably sharing a tin of beans. I don't (laughs) know. First of all, let's not confuse the fact that your family tolerates you with love. I think it's more that I tolerate them. (laughs) Well, I think this is one of those stories that'll change if we get some members of your family in here on the podcast. We don't have guests, though, on the podcast. That's one of our solemn vows. Lucky for you. Uh, is this, do you think, the first co-main event podcast we've ever recorded before noon? It's the first one I can remember, yeah. Yeah, normally you're sleeping off your hangover until 1, 2 in the afternoon. How dare you? How dare you create such an impression of me to, to our listeners? You know they'll believe anything you say. Yeah, no, that's true. That's definitely true. Anyway, this, uh, this episode of the co-main event podcast, as usual, comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, Junior Dos Santos has been the UFC heavyweight champion for 13 months now, and he hasn't been hit by an SUV or had half of his intestines fall out. But can he avoid the UFC heavyweight title curse when he enters the cage against Cain Velasquez this weekend? In round number two, suck on this, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Chris Lieben returns on Saturday to prove that there are second, third hell, maybe even fourth acts in American life. And in round three... We're going to get in the Wayback Machine and take a look at the UFC's gala end-of-the-year show from 2011 and how things have played out between then and now. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, this is your friendly reminder that you have about two weeks now before the first installment of the Co-Main Event Book Club. So if you haven't bought Bar Brawler, either the physical copy with the painting by Tank Abbott on the back or the uh, Kindle electronic copy for about $10 cheaper. Or if you're an Amazon Prime member, I believe you get it free on Kindle. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's something to know right there. <laughs> yes, it is. That makes it almost worth joining Amazon Prime. Just and if, to... you're, if you're not reading this thing, God help you. It, it is, I can't say it's a good book, but uh, God damn it sure gives you a lot to think about, doesn't it, Chad? It, yeah, no, a lot to think about. Actually, and a thing you can do if you're an Amazon user and you haven't done this already, you can join an Amazon Prime for a free trial month. And I, I bet that you could do that and then get Barbrawler for free and then at the end of the month just make sure that you unsubscribe so they don't stick you with the Game 70 the bucks system. or whatever it is. I think Tank would be proud. Uh, Regardless of the fact that he's not getting any money in this scenario, I think he would be proud of us for gaming the system. In spirit, that is something Walter Fox would totally be into. Um, So, yeah, make sure that if if you read Bar Brawler and you want your thoughts included on the special supplemental co-main event podcast episode that's going to come out that uh, first full week of January, make sure you send us your your comments by January 7th because that's the day we're going to record the thing. And then I think it's going to be released to you, the listening public, two days after that, January 9th, which I think is a Wednesday. So, yeah, just make sure you get those into us by then. Uh, For right now, though, like we always do about this time, listener mail. We put out the call for you to send us some thoughts and uh, comments about the world of mixed martial arts. And now we are going to read your questions and answer them on listener mail. And we're going to try and get Chad not to complain about how long some of the questions are this time. A couple of them are real novellas. I got to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> All right. The, the first one, though, which Listener is mail. Uh, the first question, which I would describe as the appropriate length, um, comes from Dan Barnes this week. He asks, as awesome as Rustam Hobilov's suplex. Hobilov. Ca- Hobilov. Cobbler. Kobolov. As Kobolov. Os- <laughs> as awesome as Rustam Hobilov's suplex KO of Vince Pichel was, should it be legal? He effectively knocked him out by dropping him on the back of his head, yet punches to the back of the head are illegal. Surely you apply more force by dropping a guy from six feet in the air than from a punch. 
You know, this is something that I've always wondered with slamming a guy on the back of his head, which is how I've seen some of the scariest knockouts. Uh, I remember uh, Eddie Wineland, I believe, did it to... Ken Stone. Ken Stone, that's right, in the last WEC show. And uh, I was at that one live, and man, Ken Stone was down for a while. Uh, And it looked like, oh man, this could be the the serious incident we've all been kind of waiting for and and hoping would never happen. Because you pick a guy up and slam him down with that kind of snapping force onto the back of his skull, that could be bad. And as, you know, this, this listener points out, you can't just haul off and hit a guy in the back of the head. So why can you, why are you allowed to apply more force in the same area just in a different way? Yeah, and the, uh, you know, when uh, Sarah Kaufman slammed... Right, uh, Roxanne Montefiore. Yeah, that one was, was ugly and scary too. Um, and, I, you know, I think that if you see this kind of thing become more common, I, I would not be surprised to see some sort of rule adopted to, uh, to, to outlaw... I guess spiking a guy on his head. Well, yeah, I don't think you can spike. I think like the rules do like you can't do the like the pile driver, uh, basically to spike a guy directly on his head, which I believe Nate Marquardt was the person who come the closest to really pulling that off in a in a big time fight. But uh, I think it's important to reference Rustam Hobbylov's uh, tweet on the matter, where he says that his job is to throw him. How the dude lands is his business. Uh, basically. So there is some kind of argument you can make there that, hey, you lift the guy up in the, in the air and, and try to bring him down with some force. It's tough to pinpoint exactly where the dude's going to land, especially if he is trying to move around right. in the process. No, I think that's a good point on the part of Rustam Hobolov. 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 But uh, uh, I don't know if I see – I mean, I think that Dan Barnes has a good point. I don't know if I see the, a real difference between slamming a guy on the back of his head head or punching a guy in the back of his head and i'm not sure i see a real uh substantive difference between like purposefully spiking a guy on his head and and doing the the uh eddie guerrero style german suplex where you drop him right on the top of his head as a result anyway well and we seem to uh have like these weird gray areas like if you're getting arm barred by a dude on the bottom uh you can pick him up and basically spike him on his head to get him to let go of you. And that seems to be pretty much accepted because it's like seen as more defensive somehow. Or like if a dude's trying to triangle and you do the, the big Rampage Jackson, Ricardo Arona kind of slam on it. Uh, and then for some reason though, when the dude does the suplex and spirals a dude up in the air and brings him down right on the point of his head, then I don't know if it's just that it seems more intentional or more offensive that people get a little more up in arms about it. It's weird. Like we don't really... There's a lot of those areas where it seems like we haven't drawn clear lines yet. Well, the question two this week comes to us from Ian Hossack, who asks, if you were a ref, what would your signature gesture be when your when your name got announced? I reckon I'd do a scary tiger with a, <laughs> with a snarl and pretend claws, which I have to say, pretty solid from Ian Hossack. I think that would be better than Kim Winslow's little like nose touch as if she is trying to tell you in the most unsubtle way possible that she wants to go do some coke in the bathroom. Yeah, that's not a great one. Don't pretend like that wouldn't be just a fucking roller coaster ride to go do a bunch of coke in the bathroom with Kim Winslow. Well, no, I mean, that's the problem is I'm sitting at home on the couch. I see Kim Winslow do her little nose touch thing, and I'm just like, okay, hey, well, I'll I'll meet you back there in five. Uh, (laughs) One thing I know for sure about Kim Winslow is if you OD with her when she's around, she's just going to fucking let you die. (laughs) She's not going to call an ambulance. She might might drive you to the emergency room and kick you out the, the passenger side door. And then just drive off. And drive off, yeah, and leave you crumpled there, and maybe the, the EMTs will see you. I think if it's me, if I'm a ref, uh, which I would never want to be, and had to come up with my own uh, silly little gesture, i go moose antlers, man. Oh, no question. Nice. Yeah. Nice. yeah, I hadn't thought about that one. I would do two things. Number one, <laughs> just, to, just to flip the script a little bit, I would wear all white. Instead of all I don't black, think you can do that. like the I don't refs think that's your, do, your choice to make, but go on, including some big white bell bottoms, maybe with some big stack platform heel boots. Well, you're making a mockery of this question now. Maybe with a I red, thought we were going to take maybe it like a red kerchief around my neck. So you're like the disco Lone Ranger here. Yes, because then when they announce my name as the ref, I would do a a high front karate kick <laughs> with my white bell bottoms on. You know. 
you take away the bell bottoms and you've almost got Cecil Peoples' uh, pre-fight routine. I think we've all I'm seen gonna that honest, one, right? I'm going to be honest. This is Cecil Peoples inspired because that little <laughs> like, karate chop thing that he does is amazing. This is one where I regret that this is just an audio podcast because those of you who have not seen Cecil Peoples in his role as referee doing his little karate chop bullshit uh, when the fight starts, go look that up on YouTube, man. That is, that, that's going to have your, your Christmas rolling, I'm telling you right now. Well, here's where the listener mails start to get longer. And this one comes to us from Taylor from Vancouver, who writes, When Dana White slammed Bob Arum for putting Manny Pacquiao in a fight he could lose, it seemed he was suggesting that it would have been wiser to put Pac in a fight he, could, he was guaranteed to win just to increase the number of pay-per-views he could promote with him. What does this tell us about Dana's view on matchmaking? Look at the recent decision to match GSP and Diaz together is an example of how I think Dana wants his, quote, PPV draw king to fight a name guy who he feels he can definitely win. Let's maybe clean up our sentences a little bit when we write in questions to the podcast. Yeah, that one's a little, that one needs some work. Uh, If you have to fight Diaz eventually, why not 14 months after he last fought when there might be some rust? This ensures that GSP sells a shitload of pay-per-views and gives Dana more time to hype the potential super fight. After all, while a super fight would break records, perhaps Dana thinks it would diminish the draw power of the one that loses and he wants to push the fight back to the point where the one losing might retire, nullifying this effect. Okay, just stop. Well, and let's, I want to point out, you picked this question. I do. This was a question you wanted us to answer. I did, but I didn't pick it for the second half, which I think gets gets off in the the weeds here. Well, I'm not done because then it says, what do you think? Does this (laughs) quote offer insight into matchmaking of the UFC? I did think, let's stick with the first part of the question where Dana's uh, quotes about how he thought that Aram's matchmaking uh, regarding Pacquiao was dumb. You know, you should have put him in a, a fight that he's going to win and keep building up pay-per-view buys and maybe for, for a Mayweather fight down the road. Um, that was a weird moment of promotional honesty on the part of Dana White. Uh, but the weird thing is, I don't know if that's advice that the UFC itself follows. I think one of the things that the UFC has generally gotten better at, uh, and you can use this Diaz GSP thing to, to counter this, but uh, I think right around the time when uh, Gabriel Gonzaga head kicked Mirko Krokop and knocked him out of the fight that was one they really wanted to make was Krokop and Randy Couture for the heavyweight title. And they were clearly just setting that one up thinking that Krokop is going to go out there, demolish Gabriel Gonzaga, and then you're going to have your big money fight with Randy Couture. And then their, their plans got spoiled right around that time it seemed like the UFC started to come to the realization that you should make fights where uh, it doesn't matter who wins you can work with the winner either way Uh, and I think that generally the UFC has been a lot better about that in recent years there's still this weird you know the I think the Diaz GSP thing is more a result of hey a Diaz in the hand is worth two in the bush you know if you try and put that one off and have Diaz go fight another fight and maybe get a win who knows what the hell that guy is going to do and you might never get to make that fight Yeah, I don't think it's a case of them trying to protect their champion in any way. And historically, they've been really good about not doing that. You know, they they, uh, at least prior to 2012 have have consistently given fans the fights that they wanted to see, but also made sure that the the matchmaking, especially at the championship level, made sense and that it, it was, you know, the best fighters in the division fighting each other as much as they could possibly make that happen. I think a lot of that, well, I don't even know if you can say a lot of that, but there was a noticeable shift in the way that some of the matchmaking has been done, especially during the second half of this year with Sonnen getting the shot at uh, John Jones and, uh, and now GSP fighting Diaz. Um, And we'll have to wait and see if that continues into 2013, because I do think that it's kind of a troubling development, but we'll just have to wait and, and see what happens a little bit. But I think that's one of the great things about the UFC is sure. Sometimes it has a uh, too strong of a, a dictatorial hand. Uh, It's just too, you know, our way or the highway kind of with, with fighters. Uh, but the good part about that is that it's the it's not like it is in boxing where each big fighter becomes a promotion unto himself and you can't make the guy do anything. Yeah. You know, he he wants to stick around and, and have the easier fights rather than the really tough fights that, you know, uh, he might lose and only make slightly more money than, than the other ones. I mean, I think the UFC does a pretty good job of forcing these guys to have the tough fights rather than, you know, the easy ones that all their managers are pushing for. 
Uh, the last question this week for listener mail comes from Dearly Devoted Daniel, a lover of alliteration, if yes. there ever was one. And, uh, okay, big breath here. You guys talked about making fence-grabbing being an automatic point deduction, and it seems the fence-grabbing debate is always centered on the topic of how most appropriately to enforce the fence-grabbing rule. I think we instead should be having a debate on whether we even need the fence-grabbing rule at all. Why is it illegal? I'm all for rules that are designed to enhance fighter safety, but this isn't one of them. The fence is there. Why are we pretending that it doesn't exist? Why are we only pretending it doesn't exist under, circumstan under certain circumstances? You can lean on it. You can push off of it with your palms or feet. You can trap your opponent against it and, and tee off on his mostly unconscious body, a la the poet Philip Baroni. I have to scroll down here. Uh, <laughs> you, even use it, you can even use it as a springboard like a goddamn video game character to kick your opponent in his toothpick-chewing <laughs> face. All right, that was good. Uh, you just can't grab it. Why not? How is holding the fence to prevent someone from taking you down going to hurt the sport in any way? I think letting guys grab the fence will do at least as much good as it does bad. And we're only about halfway done with this question, by the way. But it gets really good <laughs> at the very end. So what if it prevents the occasional Matt Hughes body slam? It will also prevent an equal amount of lay and prey. It might make ultimate fence clinching less prominent. If a guy is less certain, he can get the takedown by backing his guy up against the wall, scoop his legs, and drag him down. Guys will adapt to the rule change if it happens. Grabbing the fence leaves the grabber exposed. It wouldn't be too long before we saw someone faking a takedown to bait a guy into grabbing the fence Jesus. so he could then Still immediately going. tee off on his face. It's like the MMA rules committee wants to have their cake and eat it too, but they didn't... <laughs> but they but they didn't go to school for that shit, so they're trying to make the cake using whey protein instead of flour and stevia <laughs> instead of sugar. I'm sure you stick. The, I'm sure if you stick those ingredients in the oven for a while, something will come out, but it's probably not going to taste good. What do you guys think? See, somehow that cake analogy makes more sense than Matt Mitrione's. Yeah, well, that I would. That's a certainly a Mitrione-inspired question. Yeah, but and it, and it actually works better than Mitrione. I don't know. Okay. I disagree with the premise of this essay uh, disguised as a question, which is that, hey, wouldn't be so bad. The defense is there. Let's all use it. First of all, I think that the for aesthetic value, I don't know if we're, you imagine a, like a title fight where you got one guy grabbing on the other dude's legs and yanking him, and the other guy is clinging to the, the chain link fence with both hands like a toddler who doesn't want to be taken off to bed. Yeah, well, it was like when Randy Couture tried to take down Tim Sylvia in their title fight, and Sylvia like grabbed the top of the fence by the pad that's up there and, and held on for dear life. It reminds me of once when I was in uh, one of my favorite bars in New York City, Rudy's and Hell's Kitchen, uh, where you can always see some awesome daytime drinking antics going on. And like at like noon on a Sunday, I saw some dude getting thrown out. And as the bartender was picking him up and physically carrying him out of the bar, the dude kept grabbing on to the little coat racks that are attached to the booths and was, you know, just like parallel to the ground at some points. Grown man, grown man <laughs> in the middle of the afternoon holding on as if like somehow if you cling tightly enough, the bartender will be like, okay, you can stay. <laughs> um, but also beyond it, just looking stupid to let people do that. Aren't the rules already getting more and more tilted toward the striker? Yes. Not only the rules, but public opinion. Yeah. Well, do we really need, I mean, just go, go watch K1 kickboxing if that's what you want. I don't think we need to install another rule that works against the grappler. I mean, we already are standing dudes up uh, if they don't do enough to suit us, you know, and if you can't back the dude up against the fence and take him down without him clinging to all facets of his environment just as a way of not being planted on the ground, I mean, work on your takedown defense. Don't, don't rely on grabbing the fence. It's stupid. Yeah, there was also the fight where uh, Mark Coleman fought Don Fry, and Coleman took Fry down against the fence, and it took Fry, if I'm remembering correctly, this is a long time ago, obviously, it took Fry like five minutes to finally claw his way up the side of the fence. Well, he was getting headbutted during yeah, that time, exactly. too. It was a different era. And get back up, and as soon as he got back up, 265-pound Mark Coleman just picked him up, and a 215-pound Don Fry, by the way, at this point, <laughs> uh, picked him up and slammed him down. Uh, just, you're right. It, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good when one of the, no. the tough, 
professional fighter guys is uh, clinging onto the fence like like you said, a toddler who doesn't want to go to bed. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess I understand the uh, the impetus for the question from the Triple D, uh, dearly devoted Daniel. Was that what it was? I don't know. Something uh, like that. It was so long ago that I started reading that question <laughs> that I don't even remember what the guy's name was. But yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't. I think the the rule again, as we said last week, the rule against grabbing the fence, if anything, should be stiffened a little bit. Should be made a little bit more, uh, given some more teeth there. Yeah. Let's and let's put some protein powder in that cake and bake it up with some methamphetamines instead of sugar and, and take it over to eat Kim it Winslow's too, house. and then it's going to be pretty and. Sounds delicious. Yeah. Anyway, that's listener mail for this week. Uh, if you have a, a question, a comment, a concern for future episodes of the podcast, you can go to our website, comaineventpodcast.com, and click the link at the top of the page that says, email the podcast. Keep them short, people. <laughs> anyway, that'll do it uh, for listener mail, and we're going to go ahead and kick off round number one right now. Round one. Ben, it's a known fact that the UFC heavyweight title is cursed. Wow. And yet, Junior Dos Santos will only be making his second defense of that title against Cain Velasquez this weekend, which is, for the record, as far as I think anyone has ever gotten with the heavyweight title. Is that right? Two title defenses? Well, Brock Lesnar defended it twice. Yeah, but that's the most anyone has ever had, right? I believe so. Definitely in the modern era. Yeah. Um, So I guess my question to you is, Junior Dos Santos living on borrowed time before he has a motorcycle accident or a contract dispute or he slips on some pipes in the back and hits his head. What's your take here? Well, first of all, that's just incredibly cynical. I I don't think uh, Junior Dos Santos is one of those guys where uh, the only thing we have to worry about is either him losing or him deciding to devote himself to a life of pacifism and going off to be a Brazilian monk somewhere. Uh, he's not the dude who, you know, is going to be so reckless in his private life that he's going to screw this up some some other way. But there is always a thing with heavyweights. Bunch of big dudes slinging leather around. You know, it's it's a sword fight out there. It only takes one mistake and you get knocked out. And that's, yeah. you know, that's one of the things that's really exciting about it. Like I talked to Junior Dos Santos uh, recently for a, we're doing a, a big pullout in USA Today about UFC 155 this week. And, you know, he was saying, hey, that's, Heavyweights finish fights. When we punch each other, it doesn't matter where in the arena you're sitting, you can hear it. And that's part of the appeal. It's also part of what makes that hard to establish a dominant heavyweight champion. Yeah, but I mean, and that kind of... uh... That kind of of factor, I think, plays into the into the favor of Junior Dos Santos, though, because he's one of those guys in the heavyweight division that makes the margin for error so tiny. Because clearly, we've seen like the first time he fought Cain Velasquez, if if he puts one in your ear, you know, literally, you're gonna fall down and yeah. be unconscious after that. And so I think you know it was something that it was a lot in the same way that Brock Lesnar was able to do, where you know he he could take a guy down and put him in a position that for any other fighter, wouldn't really be that dangerous. But when Lesnar got you there, like he did to Frank Mir in their rematch and was able to put you in like a third-grade bully-type position, <laughs> when he punched you in the face from that position, fucking hurt. Yeah. And, uh, and dude, though, Santos is a little bit the same way. Like, he, you know, if he hits you one time the, the right way in the right spot, you're probably going to go to sleep. So it, it, it makes the, the margin for error in the heavyweight division very, very slim. And it's the kind of thing that I think makes... You know, it, it makes strikers at that level a little bit more dangerous than maybe at some of the other levels where, where a grappler might have the, the advantage because he's willing to wade through a couple of shots in order to get the takedown. Well, also, you look at uh, Junior Dos Santos's history against uh, some pretty good wrestlers, and he's not going to be an easy guy to take down. You know, I think that if you're Cain Velasquez, that's kind of what you have to rely on is your ability to, to get in there on a deep shot and put the guy down and then do something when he's on the mat. But, right. you know, we saw him against Shane Carwin. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would suggest to you though that we haven't seen anybody really test Junior Dos Santos's takedown defense in a serious way yet. I mean, you, you mentioned the Carwin fight, but that, you know, Carwin tried a couple of times to take him down, couldn't really get it, and then got so beat up so fast that he kind of abandoned the takedown well, because he thought it was fruitless. But also, it was one of those instances where he kind of like the whole fight was altered by the fact that that Carwin had a broken nose and and 
you know. Well, the, the, how he ended up there was that he couldn't get him down. I think you can't take credit away from uh, Dos Santos for that. I mean, he stopped the takedowns and then beat him up on the feet. And, it, you know, at the end of one round, Carwin's like, oh, shit, you know, my right. game plan's out No, the I, I agree with you. I just think that Velasquez is a completely different kind of test than, say, a Shane Carwin. Um, not only because they're different kind of wrestlers, uh, you know, Velasquez is going to probably use more speed and, and technique, whereas Carwin is is – is almost totally a power guy. And in the, in the first fight, Velasquez, you know, didn't, didn't really bring any of his wrestling to bear. So I would think that in this fight, you're going to see a lot more of that. And it's one of the reasons why I think this fight is interesting because I think you're going to see junior Dos Santos, junior Dos Santos's takedown defense get tested in a way that we haven't seen yet. Well, also the thing was after the last fight, almost immediately afterwards, we started hearing about both guys knee problems. And it's one of those, since they both have different fighting styles, it's hard to say, well, your knee injuries cancel each other out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're both, it's like a, like a Tekken video game where you both diminish your, your player, your character's power down to like 50%. So then you're even, no, it's not really like that because Junior Dos Santos' style, you know, he doesn't need quite the same explosive power and, uh, uh, being able to, to shoot the way Cain Velasquez relies on. So maybe his knee injury affected him a little bit more. It was a fight though that was so quick that it's hard to really look at that one and learn too much. Except yeah. you know, if we learned anything, it's that you know, Cain Velasquez can be knocked out. That if you put one in his ear, like you say, you know, he can go down. And that's yeah. I think, especially over a course of a five round fight, you look at Cain Velasquez. How's he going to win this fight? I think everyone expects it that he's going to have to win it over time. It's going to have to be a, a longer grind where he has to keep putting Junior Dos Santos down. I don't think anyone really expects that. You're going to take Junior Dos Santos down once and then beat him there. You, you know, you're probably going to have to do that a few times. Well, yeah, I mean, we don't know. We, we haven't really seen that yet, so we'll see what happens. I mean, I think if the, if the fight I, – I think the fight would either end by a first-round stoppage or by decision because, you know, we haven't seen Dos Santos down there yet, so it's possible – that if Velasquez gets him on the ground, he will be able to dominate him. But we have seen Velasquez, you know, attempt that game plan against people before. And, you know, he, he finished uh, Antonio Silva, right. you know, with a lot of help from cuts and the guy bleeding all over in his eyes and mouth. And that just seemed like a, a horrible way to exist there for a little right. while for poor Bigfoot. You can't take that away from Velasquez. Though. No, no. Just like a minute ago. No, you can't. Um, but, uh, you know, in other fights where he's taken the guy down and kind of laid a methodical beating on him, yeah. Velasquez does not seem like that guy who, like the Lesnar kind of guy who can get you in a bad position and one or two shots and you're done. Sure. No, I agree with that. At the same time, though, I feel like uh, Velasquez is being counted out a little bit in this fight by a lot of people that, you know, you see on the internets and, and certainly from the odds heading into the fight. I feel like people are approaching this thinking that we've seen this fight before. And so that Which we have, we have, but I mean, I, I would posture to you that the first fight is not incredibly germane to this second one for a lot of different reasons, several of which you already talked about. What if they both have knee injuries again and then right afterwards or this time, maybe uh, ankle injuries, elbow. Yeah. Elbow, elbow how about injuries? elbow injuries? Yeah. Well, but I mean that first Separated fight, ribs. pretty much everything was weird about that first it fight. It was. Like you can almost have to take that one and throw it away, I think, just because it was, you know, even though we don't know this for certain, it sure as hell seemed like someone told Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos, hey, this is our first fight on Fox. Nobody better get fucking injured and yeah. pull out of this one. Yeah, that one, you know, they had such a buzz built up around that one. It clearly seemed like they had been told that pulling out of this one was not an option because otherwise, if Cain Velasquez really hurt his knee as badly as he said, you know, that close to the fight, you know, who would go on and put the heavyweight title on the line after that if you had a choice? You know, that just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And yeah. I mean, you and I were both there for that one. It was definitely a different media environment yes. and just the, the days leading up to the fight. Well, yeah, the whole week was different. And yeah. I think that's the kind of thing that if you had to if you had to choose, you would probably say affected or may have affected Velasquez more. Not that either guy would ever cop to that. But I mean, the lead up to that first Fox fight uh, in California was it was a heightened sense of anticipation and everything seemed a little bit bigger. And they did those public press conferences, you know, in yeah. the middle of outside the Staples Center, I think we were. Uh, outside the uh, the Nokia Theater. Oh, that's right, yeah. outside Nokia Theater. And, who and did we, didn't we see John Sally? <laughs> we were, we were, yeah, we saw John Sally while we were walking down there. Yeah, Chad, Chad, uh, just a, a country boy in the big city, comes all the way from Montana. We stay at the same hotel in uh, 
in, in downtown LA and we're walking along the street and then there's John Sally standing there uh, shooting some spot spider yeah John the spider Sally you could just oh, you could exciting. see it in Chad's eyes where he's like oh this is how what it's like in Los Angeles there's just famous people in every corner and I forgot my autograph book in the hotel yeah that's the shame you know it well yeah and you're the right. lead up you know, to the... that fight though was sort of billed as something of a homecoming for Cain Velasquez you and know? you know he does not like media attention yeah he does not like doing all those interviews so if anything I would think like I said not that either guy would, would ever cop to it but the, the pressure leading up to that that first fight for Velasquez was probably a lot more than what he's feeling heading into this fight. True. And I feel like a lot of the the factors for that first fight were just different. And so it's the kind of fight that, to me, doesn't tell us a tremendous amount of stuff about what's going to happen in the second one. Well, the thing I wonder is we hear this as a criticism a lot of the heavyweight division that the title gets passed around too much. Nobody really establishes a, a reign of dominance at the top and that, you know, that somehow this hurts the, the promoter's ability to really sell the heavyweight champion, the baddest man on the planet, uh, you know, as, on a consistent basis. And we, then we hear the opposite criticism in other divisions where, oh, you know, Anderson Silva just cleans out middleweight and John Jones, you know, is going to dominate light heavyweight. And then we got George St. Pierre at welterweight. Uh, so it's like we can't really decide what we think would be better for the sport. Is it better to have a, an established heavyweight champion who everybody can say, hey, especially because the heavyweight champion seems like such a big deal to say that's the man, that's the baddest dude on the planet. Uh, and he's been that way for a little while. Does it hurt to have you know the uh, the heavyweight title get passed around like a doobie at Nick Diaz's house? Uh, I think still it call does. them doobies, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay, can I score a lit of grass off of you, brother? <laughs> Narc. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it does hurt it a little bit, and maybe not for for hardcore fans, but I think that it hurts the marketability of the division a little bit because uh, it's sort of a proven fact that. Sports fans in general really like dominance. You know, we can complain about it all we want, but when the Yankees play the Red Sox in, in you know, the, the the AL East rivalry, it, it gets the highest ratings, and people love yeah. the Yankees because they've won the World Series so many goddamn times, and now that LeBron James has won a title, people fucking love the Heat, shit like that. You know, they love the Lakers, et cetera, et cetera. Michael Jordan, the dominance sells. Mike Tyson, for example. Dominance sells in this in the sporting industry. And so I think it hurts a little bit to not have and to frankly have never had that really, really dominant heavyweight champion who can go on a tear and just be scary and be the kind of guy like Mike Tyson was that people will shell out the money to watch on pay-per-view just to see what the fuck he's going to do to this other guy that he's fighting. But could Junior Santos be that guy? Because as good as he is, he he's not really he's not really scary. He's too he's too motherfucking nice. As uh, right. they would say on the Everybody wire. Everybody just so motherfucking friendly. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, and I, I talked to him when I talked to him for the, the story we're doing. And, you know, he kind of acknowledged that. And he was saying, like, yeah, you know, you want to be the baddest man on the planet. But, like, I don't know. I'm a nice guy. I don't really want to do, the, you know, play up that whole angle of it. Like, I want to just be a nice guy who wins fights. I mean, is, is that really what people are going to latch on to as the heavyweight champion? Yeah, I mean, I think that could work for him. Being Sold just, ice cream in the streets. Yeah. Or, ice creams. Yeah, ice creams. Uh, you know, I think that could work for him in terms of marketability to be a big kind of teddy bear guy who, when you see him talk, honestly, comes off as a big kid. Yeah. Like, after he knocked out Velasquez in that last fight, and they told him how many people watched him in Brazil, and there was, like, this moment of silence, and then it sort of dawned on him, and JDS was like... I'm famous. <laughs> like he couldn't believe it. He was just like, you know, it was like, he was like a 12 year old on Christmas. I think that could work for him. If he's a guy that goes out and, and, you know, delivers fantastic knockouts every time he goes out there. I'm just not a hundred percent sold that he is that dominant guy. You know what I mean? I feel like we are starting to, to do the thing that we do in MMA where somebody wins a couple fights and suddenly we're like, Oh, he's the greatest of all time. He'll never be defeated. And I'm just saying, let's wait and see how this one turns out. And then we'll maybe we'll be looking ahead to an Overeem fight and then we'll be able to figure something out. You're still holding out hope that your boy Tim Boach is going to go up and wait and, and become Jump up a couple weight classes? Yeah. Why not, man? Yeah. He's already laid waste to middleweight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Uh, you want to do, are we going to do, are you fucking kidding me this round? Sure, let's sure. do that and then, then, then we'll get out of here. Uh, this week, my are you fucking kidding me, I hope, is my last are you fucking kidding me about the Strike Force. Zufa partnership because man, we haven't seen Scott Coker for months. 
I was about ready to organize a search party to make sure the poor guy is okay. And when it finally comes time to have the official press conference where we announce that Strike Force is dead after this upcoming January show, who the fuck do they dust off and bring out of the closet to deliver the bad news? Scott Coker. I mean, I just feel bad for the guy at this point. By all accounts, he's a super nice guy, but it seems like he was completely stripped of all of his power after the UFC bought Strikeforce. Yeah. And they've been hiding him in a roadside motel in Bakersfield all this time. Yeah, maybe. He's, he's just been sitting there chain smoking, <laughs> watching cops. He's in the cops. witness protection program. I don't know. As soon as it comes time to pull the plug, goddamn, Scott Coker has to go out there and take the fucking whipping. So, you fucking kidding me? Sending Scott Coker out there? Ugh, fucking man. kidding me? You know, it's weird. The email announcing that it was Strike Force's last show officially uh, got somehow sent into my spam folder. I feel like there's there's a lesson there. Symbolism. Uh, yeah, there. I don't know what it is. My Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to big country, Roy Nelson, who said in an interview recently that he feels like if he had had two more rounds against Junior Dos Santos rather than it just being a three-round fight when they fought before JDS was the champ. If he'd had this, those two more rounds, it could have been a different fight. Which, sure, you might have been killed, Roy Nelson, if there had been two more rounds to that fight. You really tr trying to act like we didn't all see what you looked like at the end of three rounds? You fucking kidding me, Roy Nelson? You fucking kidding me? Anyway, that's it for round number one. We're going to get started with round number two right now. Also at UFC 155 this weekend, Chad, we have the return of the Cat Smasher, the Crippler, Chris Lieben, who has been away after his year suspension for uh, Oxycontin use uh, following his fight with Mark Munoz at, I believe, UFC 138. Uh, that was November of 2011. Uh, and it was kind of one more symbol that maybe, one more sign that Chris Lieben maybe doesn't have his personal life all that well s sewn together. Uh, he went away for a little while. Now he's back with all the usual declarations of sobriety and lessons learned and turning everything around. What say you, Chad Dundas? Are, are we going to see a new Chris Lieben or are we just going to see a slightly altered version of the same Chris Lieben we've seen? You know, I've always liked Chris Lieben. I know that I, about I, you. I like the guy a lot, but I don't think that there's any way that we see a different Chris Lieben, at least inside the cage. I mean, he's a nice guy. I think he's a guy who's honest almost to a fault, which is always, I think, refreshing to see in a, prof a professional athlete. Um, and when you actually talk to him, he realized that he is a smarter guy than I think he gets credit for, uh, you know industry-wide, at least from fans. I don't, yeah. I don't know if he gets the credit that he deserves for being a smart guy. Uh, and so you really hope that he's a guy who has got his personal life in order outside the cage, and maybe he's, you know, he's taking some steps to, be a little, to have a little bit more healthy of a lifestyle. You hope that he has all that stuff together. But I think that we all know that he is now, is going to be in this fight, and will probably forever be a guy who gets punched in the face and... and as he has said himself, it's like a button connected to his left hand. Yeah. He just fires off the left hook, the like looping, like he took it out of his back pocket playground haymaker. But and he, that's he's always going to be that guy. And see, I guess this is my my follow up question to that. Wouldn't the ideal scenario for Chris Lieben be if he could be that Chris Lieben in the cage, that guy, the wild, reckless? You know, he's just going to get fired up and come after you for better or worse kind of guy. And yet somehow not be that guy out of the cage. Like, isn't that the, that the ideal scenario for him? Uh, yeah, at this point, I suppose it is. I mean, he's already established who he is as a fighter. And, like, and people just, love that. And people love it. And it's easy to love. And that's probably not going to change. And, and so, yeah, I think, you know, that is... Uh, that is probably the best case scenario for, scenario for him at this point. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Hunter S. Thompson towards the end of his life. He had established this character almost for himself as a guy who, when he showed up in your town, man, he was going to tear it up and drink, drink all the booze and take all the drugs and act crazy and do all this weird shit. 
And then, you know, he started to get old, and pretty soon being that guy wasn't that cool anymore for Hunter S. Thompson. And he felt like he showed he would show up in these places and had sort of painted himself into a corner where he had to get super drunk and take all these drugs. And Are you saying Chris Levin's going to shoot himself and then have his ashes fired out of a cannon? Well, I hope not. I hope not. Me I mean, too. I think that, you know, in the scheme of things, he's still relatively young, and maybe he's a guy who's figured out that, that certainly in terms of, like, longevity and probably his future in the UFC, uh, which is, you know, I, I assume another topic that we're going to want to discuss, he, he's probably not going to get too many more chances, you would think. Okay, well, that brings us to a good point. If he was not the hard-charging Chris Lieben, the, the fun brawler who everybody likes to f- see fight um, because, you know, somebody's getting hurt, he doesn't particularly care who it is, I don't think there's any way he gets as many chances at the UFC as he has. And he's gotten a ton of them. Yeah. I mean, he tested positive for steroids. He's been arrested for DUI. Uh, now the OxyContin thing. I mean, and the UFC keeps sticking with the guy because they like him. They, they like to have him around, like to see him fight. Uh, and also because fans like him. And I think there have seemed at times in Chris Lieben's life and career where everybody else wants a successful clean and sober existence for him more than he wants it himself. Yeah, for sure. I think that's entirely accurate. I've always felt like he has a very strange relationship with the UFC because it's absolutely true that he's gotten more chances than anybody maybe short of Alicio Sakara. <laughs> and yet at the same time, I think at least early on he felt And I think it was easy to make the case that the UFC wasn't necessarily crazy about him coming out of the Ultimate Fighter. You know, he got a second chance even before the end of that first season of the Ultimate Fighter. They brought him back after he lost. Yeah, and then they let him fight Jason Thacker at the finale. I mean, what what more of a gift could you give to the guy? Yeah, I remember though that coming out of that season, a bunch of those guys got these lucrative Zions sponsorships, which I guess they thought were lucrative at the time. Who knows what they were for? a pack of gum and some Zions probably. And, but they didn't give one to Lieben. And I remember talking to him after the first season of the ultimate fighter. And he was really like bummed out about that. They had given these sponsorships to other guys, but he didn't feel like, and you know, the UFC owned Zions pretty much. I think we can, we can say that at this point. So he didn't, and he didn't feel like one of the, one of the more favorite guys, I guess, coming off of that show. But that makes sense. I mean, Lieben might be the guy that you want to have out there putting butts in seats and, and brawling in the cage. But, uh, I would think a lot of sponsors, especially back then, would be wary of uh, putting your, your brand name on that guy because you don't know what he's going to do in or out of the cage. You right. know, that, so that kind of stuff makes sense. I, we, you know, I wrote a thing on Lieben also for this UFC 155 pullout and USA Today this week. I don't know if I've mentioned that, that we're doing that. Um, so go out and buy a, a damn newspaper. Uh, but I, I asked Dana White, you know, what, how come Chris Lieben keeps getting all these second chances why does Lieben, you know, other guys can get popped just for steroids once and they're gone. Or, you know, a DUI and an OxyContin, that combination alone would be enough to get most guys fired. Here's what Dana White said. Quote, I respect Chris Lieben. He was one of the original guys from the first season of Ultimate Fighter and he's a guy I like and respect. He's had personal problems for a long time that he's had to deal with, but I don't consider this a second or third chance or anything like that. He's always exciting and people like watching him fight, including me. Now... It's one thing to say, like, okay, I like the guy, I respect him, people like watching him fight, all that, totally fine. I don't know how you say you don't consider it a second or thir- third chance. Is that Dana White saying, hey, short of uh, Chris Lieben going on a shooting spree, we're sticking with the guy because, you know, people like to see him. Well, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a second or, or third or even fourth chance. I mean, this was a dude who was in jail, right, and had to, they had to postpone his yes. fight with Michael Bisping because he was in jail. So I don't know how you could not say that this isn't, at the very least, a second chance, even if you take out all of the other yeah. shit that he's and done. And we know that Dana White keeps count of chances, because remember when Nate Marquardt got released for the testosterone thing uh, in Pittsburgh, where the main event got scuttled, and people came to Dana White and said, hey, what about, you know, why not give the guy a second chance? He screwed up that one, but why fire him because of that? And Dana White was like, it's not a second chance. You know, he tested positive for steroids before. You know, this is a, this is a third chance or something like that. You know, something to that effect. So he will, he will keep score at times and just seems like with Chris Lieben, he's saying, nah, screw it, whatever. We love the guy. Which, on one hand, you want to be like, 
Uh, that seems like kind of an unfair double standard. On the other hand, isn't that what the entire MMA world does when it comes to Chris Liebman? We just like the guy. I think because you said that honesty, that, that openness he has about his own problems, uh, you know, he's not trying to fool anybody necessarily. And even when he does get in trouble, you know, he gets popped for OxyContin. It's not like, you know, the guys who are abusing testosterone, even when he got popped for steroids and people asked him, you know, what's up with the steroids? And he was like, man, everybody else has abs when they show up and fight. I wanted to look, look ripped once. And he did look ripped for that fight. Yeah, that was the fight where those of us who have been watching Chris Lieben for a lot of years got really nervous when we saw how he looked when he showed up in the cage. <laughs> and then it turned out that our fears were well-founded. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it goes, especially in terms of like how the UFC deals with him, I think it goes back to the point that the UFC is a privately owned company that appears to operate without any policy whatsoever. And it's like, if, if the guys who run the company like you, if they consider you to be a quote-unquote real fighter and you're exciting and you have fans and maybe you sell tickets and maybe you sell a couple of pay-per-views, they're going to keep you. say you. yes when they call. Yeah, you always say yes when you call, when they call. Even when it's for Anderson Silva. That's, the th that's another thing I was going to bring up. But I think they're going to kind of stick with you through at least thick and some thin. And clearly they've stuck with Lieben through a lot of thin times. And maybe as a conspiracy theory, we should just throw out Maybe they feel a little bad for feeding him to Anderson Silva in his first fight in the UFC. I think any theory that rests on uh, the UFC's collective conscience as an organization is a flawed theory to begin with. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, fight promoters can't afford too much conscience in that regard. The thing for me with Lieben, before we, we leave this and, and move on to a new topic, uh, I think the, the fact that it feels like we kind of watched this guy from when he was a cub mm -hmm. coming out of the first season of the Ultimate Fighter. Yeah. We saw those, those hard-drinking antics that were at times encouraged for our entertainment value. It feels like there's this kind of collective, I don't want to say guilt, but like we're all, like Chris Lieben is the, the cousin who we all want to see pull it together, man. And, you know, we like him. We feel like at times maybe we have enabled him, uh, but we also... We feel invested in, in this, this story that we want him to be successful, even if it takes a, a bunch of chances. And, you know, anybody who watches uh, their fair share of intervention like I do knows that uh, that's how it is with addicts. They're going to need their, their share of chances. Chris Lieben seems to realize now that he can't just go out and have a drink, you know, like other people can just have one. He, he is going to be an addict. Uh, and that's something he's going to have to deal with the rest of his life. I think we all... The reason we don't mind seeing him get one chance after another is because, damn it, we just want to believe that, that, that our guy Chris can pull it together, that that's possible. Man, I can't believe that you watch Intervention. You don't watch Intervention? No, man, you know what I do. I, it's strictly First 48 for me on A&E. That's it. That's well, how I roll. I, I like me some First 48, too, but, uh, you know, when, uh, when, when Candy comes out there and tells somebody that we're inviting you to join the fight today, oh, man, that gets you. I'll have to take your word for it. A lot of people in this room who love you, Chad. <laughs> one of the things that, that I think made me like Lieben early on was that it was one of the first like really early instances of where I felt the MMA community at large, at least dudes on message boards, totally lashed out in an unfair way against somebody. Because remember how much fucking shit he took for crying on the first season of The Ultimate Fighter? No, like, I People don't were calling that. him a pussy and all this shit <laughs> online. And it's like, man, 16 seasons later... You're lucky if you don't get out of a single episode of The Ultimate Fighter without some fucking guy crying. <laughs> and declaring, let me bang, bro. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've always liked about Lieben is the interview you did with him way back in the day, right off of that first season of The Ultimate Fighter. And I remember we were at a sport fight event in Portland. It was Portland. a sport fight where Ed Herman beat Glover Tashira. That's right. And then walked exhausted through the crowd <laughs> to celebrate. Um, and... You were talking to Lieben, and I think, you know, he was, it was before he had the fight with Jason Thacker on the finale, and it was kind of unclear at the time because the UFC had made it seem like all these guys are going to be on the show and the winners will get contracts, and it was kind of left up in the air what would happen to the losers. Now we, we know better how that works, but at the time, it was unclear what was going to happen with his future. And you made some remark along the lines. I don't know if you were saying, like, hey, so you're going to stick with this fighting business or what? I think I just asked him what his future plans were or something. Yeah, and his response was, well... I'm not going to go become an architect anytime soon. One of my favorite MMA quotes of all time. As and if they were, that was the dichotomy. It was like, well, either you're a fighter or you're an architect, and you better choose. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's probably going to do it for our discussion of Chris Lieben in round number two. We're going to go ahead and get started with round number three right now. 
round three. Well, Ben, the UFC, as it is wont to do for its end of the year, for lack of a better word, New Year's Eve show, has given us a pretty awesome card, I guess, for this weekend's UFC 155. And as we said at the top of the show, we're going to take a a look back a little bit at last year's end of the year card, UFC 141, where I think most notably Alistair Overeem uh, beat Brock Lesnar, Nate Diaz defeated Donald Cerrone, and Johnny Hendricks knocked out John Fitch. Uh, This was a card that, at least according to the reported buy rate, did 750,000 buys. As you look back on it today, does it feel like we've entered a a new and different world as compared to what was happening a year ago at this time? It does feel like we've made some uh, pretty seismic shifts in a couple directions, especially when it comes to title fight matchmaking uh, since that time. There's also a lot where... I mean, obviously, Brock Lesnar is going to help when it comes to pay-per-view sales. And now you lost Brock Lesnar after that one. So pay-per-view buys and stuff like that are generally going to take a hit after that. But I think one of the things that's interesting to look at is how we felt coming out of that event. Like, if I had told you right after Alistair Overeem beat Brock Lesnar that we'd be sitting here a year later and we would not have seen Alistair Overeem again, you know, obviously because of his testosterone stuff. Uh, like at the time, it looked like, okay, well, next up is Alistair Overeem. Then he goes and screws it up. Uh, but then there's also like, okay, hey, if I'd have told you, you know, that's the same card where Johnny Hendricks knocked out John Fitch. If I would have told you that then, you know, Johnny Hendricks would go on to do the exact same thing to Martin Campman and then still wouldn't be next in line for a title shot and would have a win over Josh Koscheck. And even after all of that, still would not even be next for the welterweight title. I think some of those, if we could have gone in a time machine and and told ourselves that at the end of 2011, we would have been shocked. Yeah, well, there's no possible way for us to have foretold how, I don't know if you want to say off the rails, but just how unexpected things would turn out to be during 2012. And in a lot of ways, I feel like the UFC's momentum slowed down a lot during this year and and some of it was because of some of those things that you just talked about i mean we can't necessarily act like we're totally shocked that alistair overeem yeah that's what i thought you were gonna say foul of no way uh, no way we could have predicted that (laughs) alistair overeem might have some uh some licensing issues no, I mean, he's a guy that, that people have had their suspicions about for years. So. The suspicions about going into that fight. Remember, he avoided the drug test in Nevada uh, and kind of ran out the door to escape Keith Kaiser at one point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, no, you can't really be that surprised about that. I mean, I would say that, you know, even now, considering what we think we know, about the guy and the fact that he's been suspended for elevated levels of testosterone. He's still an exciting figure in the heavyweight division. And he was exciting coming out of that defeat over Lesnar, because when you see him fight, he just looks like a killing machine. He just looks like an insane robot from the future. Who's been sent back in time to toss Brett Rogers around like a 10 year old. (laughs) Poor Brett Rogers. And so, yeah, I mean, I mean, to to consider what a rough 2012 he has had, and I guess the same is true for Johnny Hendricks. I mean, the real surprise, I guess, is Johnny Hendricks to think that he would go through this year without getting at least a shot at some interim title and is going to head into 2013 still without a, a shot of the title on his plate. And now with this, you know, uh, makeshift matchup, I guess you would say, against Jake Ellenberger. Yeah. Hard not to say Johnny Hendricks got the shaft almost worse than anybody else in the company yeah. this year. Well, and now we look at this year-end show, right? You've got Junior Dos Santos and Cain Velasquez at the top for the heavyweight title. Uh, always great to end the year with a heavyweight title fight. That feels like a big year-end kind of show. Uh, you look elsewhere on the card, you know, Joe Lozon, Jim Miller, you know, pretty decent uh, lightweight fight there. Your guy, Tim Boach, uh, taking on Costa Filippu. Uh, I know you're excited about that one. Uh, Okami versus Alan Belcher, which is a fight that, you know, could have some real ramifications there for the middleweight division. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the return of Chris Lieben once against Carlos Vemela. Now he's out. So it's Derek Brunson stepping in. There's a lot of, of different facets to this fight card. Does it feel to you like, Hey, the big year end show, does it feel like that quality? 
No, it doesn't really. I mean, and I do think it's a it's a pretty awesome fight card, as I said at the top of the round. So I want to focus on the positives here, Man, mainly because your dude Tim Boach is on it. Yeah, my saying. my dude, the Barbarian. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we wouldn't want it said that we only focus on the negatives no, here on, no, on the Co-Main not. Event podcast. So we should say slanderous. UFC 155, pretty awesome card, but I think only pretty awesome by the standards of 2012. Like only awesome by the new world of how these UFC cards are being put together. I don't think that, you know, a, 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 well, I mean, you can just compare it to last year and not even as close to as awesome. But, but the, I think the... The thing is, and this is a problem that the UFC has kind of created for itself, that it depends how we're talking about awesome. If we're talking about just like entertainment value, excitement, you know, quotient of the fights, and you look around when you got Chris Lieben on the card, uh, and uh, Joe Lozon Jim Miller will probably be a pretty exciting fight. Uh, your dude Tim Boats will probably not, uh, but uh, you're, you love him anyway. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, even on the undercard where, uh, you know, Leonard Garcia is going to go out there and throw some haymakers, you know that. Uh, Todd Duffy's going to get back up in there. The Melvin Guiard jamie Varner fight that was scrapped uh, when Varner was puking all over his shoes in the back. That one's got, uh, you know, a lot of excitement value built in, and, and that's rescheduled for this one. So it's like you've got, as far as how fun well, the fights are going to be to watch, you got some good stuff there. The problem is, like... Are, are, is that all the UFC can offer you because it, it's matchmaking, you know, it's kind of path to the top has become so muddled in a lot of the divisions that you don't know what gets you a title shot necessarily anymore. And it's hard to, to create that, that through line where this, you know, equals this, you know, win this fight and you'll end up here. Uh, that kind of logical system uh, has been kind of messed with a lot in the last few months. And so maybe it makes it harder to, you can't sell fights as like, hey, these are contender fights if also the contenders you choose seem to have nothing to do with who won the past fights. Right, yeah. And no, like it, it certainly seems like there has been an enormous shift in terms of how the matchmaking happens. And I guess at this point, you would have to infer that that is, has been a conscious decision on the part of the UFC, that they have, you know, it, it, unless you just chalk it up to the to like the, the avalanche of injuries, you would have to say that it seems like they have made the willful decision to start to build these cards in for what they think looks like will produce exciting fights, not necessarily what will produce contenders for titles or some sort of like linear uh, storyline toward figuring out who the best fighter in the world is. And frankly, I think that's kind of a shame because one of the reasons that I like the UFC, one of the reasons that I think that it, it's awesome is that it has always provided that sort of, uh, you know, linear matchmaking that it is always, they've always done a good job of like telling a story as to some guys march toward the title. And, you know, you probably need to look no further than the fact that there's an actual um, relevant flyweight fight on this card between two guys who are probably both in, you know, uh, closing in on, on contender status. And it's buried way down on the preliminary card that, you know, that probably speaks to the fact that the flyweights just aren't that popular yet. But also, you know, that's a fight that could potentially mean something in the 125 pound division. And it's not even... You know, it's not even being mentioned. It's not even on the on the main card. It, it's it's you know kind of an afterthought, if anything. Well, look at that Okami Belcher fight at middleweight, right? What do you tell Alan Belcher here? That because he looks like he's you know in the mix, as Dana White would say. Uh, Okami's already had his shot at Anderson Silva and lost, so it's going to be you know naturally it's going to be tougher for him to make his case for another fight with him as long as Silva's a champion. Uh, but with Belcher, what do you say? Hey, you win this fight, and then. I don't know, man. It'll be you and Wyden's up there and maybe Bisping. And we don't even know if Anderson Silva is interested in fighting middleweights right now. But, uh, hey, it would be better for you to win than to lose. Like, the UFC has kind of made this decision that we're going to book these the fights that seem big rather than the fights that seem... Because, you know, like the Nick Diaz-GSP fight, that's going to be... That's going to get more attention. It's going to be a bigger fight money-wise and, like, you know, the media spotlight-wise than GSP Johnny Hendricks would. Uh, even if Johnny Hendricks deserves it more. But when you do that, you sacrifice the ability to be able to sell these other fights as number one contender fights or as this is meaningful because it determines who does this. Once you start getting people used to the idea that uh, these things don't necessarily determine it, we'll see how it plays out, you know, we'll see where we are in six months, that kind of thing, 
uh, it gets a lot tougher to keep their interest with some of those bouts a little further down in the division. Plus, you know, what are you, again, what are you supposed to say to Alan Belcher? What does this fight do for him? Yeah. You don't know. Stuff the takedown. That's what I would say to him. Yeah? Yeah. You should be in Alan Belcher's corner. I, sh- I should. I, I'll give that kind of... Well, you'd have to hurry to get back to get in time to get in Tim Boach's corner. Yeah. Let me ask you, when you run your Tim Boach fan site, does it get a, a lot more traffic on the nights when Tim Boach fights? Or is it just, you know, your servers, are, are they ready to handle it? Are you talking about barbarianhorde.tv? <laughs> I, I don't know the exact web address, but yeah, feel free to plug it. I hear that your forums are really active. Yes, yeah, there are, we've got upwards of, of a dozen people actively participating yeah. in our forums at barbarianhorde.tv. <laughs> Um, well, right, but the, and the thing that you talk about in terms of convincing people to buy these fights, we talked about this at the top of the show. Last year's year-end show did seven hundred fifty thousand buys. We just did a quick look. Maybe we're not. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we'll get fact-checked on this. But it doesn't seem like the UFC did any shows this year that did seven hundred fifty thousand buys. At least in terms of reported buys, which I think we always have to put an asterisk next to because yeah, cause we no, don't really know. Yeah. Um, it's basically just Dave Meltzer reports that and everybody else is like, okay, sure. We'll, yeah. We'll take we'll, your word we'll, for it. We'll take his word um, for it. But it, it kind of makes it feel GSP, like it's all, the GSP one did pretty close. Right. Yeah, it did 700,000. Yeah. That's, that's, that's about as close as you're going to come there. Right. I mean, especially you lose Brock Lesnar and yeah, that, that takes a pay-per-view hit. So I don't know. I don't know if, again, I always get like in this kind of weird state of like frustration when people get too fixated on. What are the buys at? Where are the buys trending? Or like, what are the ratings? Like, who cares to some extent? I mean, I get it. We want this to be successful because we don't want it to go away. You know, we want other people to, to get onto it. It's the thing like you always do when you're an MMA fan. You always want to tell other people how awesome this thing is. And you don't understand why more people aren't watching it. But at the same time, if you like something, what do you care who else likes it? You know? It's like this reverse kind of hipster thing where we need, like, instead of, like, wanting to know this band that nobody else knows yet, we need to, to know that a bunch of other people are in on this stuff with us. Otherwise, we start to question it. I don't get it. I mean, if you like it, you like it. Who, who cares how many other people are watching? Mumford and Sons? How do you, how do you feel about those guys? You like, you like their music? Their... I'm not, not going to have an, another Mumford and Sons conversation <laughs> with you. I don't even know a Mumford and Sons song. That's a band, though, right? A group, a singing group is, that the kids it, like today. It is a singing group that the kids like. I don't think they play heavy metal, though, so you wouldn't be interested. No, uh, and it's not R. Kelly, so it's yeah, basically it's crossed off your list right pretty there. Pretty much out of my wheelhouse, right there. Well, I feel like we've ground to a halt here. Let's <laughs> do uh, just saying stuff, and then then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, All right, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. My just saying stuff. As many of you have probably heard, Alexander Emelianenko, brother to MMA great Fedor Emelianenko, uh, announced that he is retiring from MMA. Uh, he also, there were rumors that he's been let go from his M1 Global contract for, let's just say, conduct unbecoming even an M1 Global fighter. Uh, they claim that uh, he had uh, violated his contract over and over again. There were even rumors of him uh, being abusive to flight attendants and starting a brawl with a hotel party in a hotel somewhere or really? a wedding party in a hotel. Oh, I had not heard that. Oh, That's yeah. There, excellent. You know, there are always plenty of Alexander Emelianenko rumors. And he has seemed like the real, the black sheep of the Emelianenko family. Even when you'd see the two brothers in the room together on fight cards, like the Affliction fight cards that they fought on, it kind of seemed like Fedor was vaguely embarrassed of his ne'er-do-well tattooed, uh, you know, tall tale telling uh, brother now that he's retired from MMA though he's going to be looking around for some way to make a living I'm just saying if you're a Russian mobster looking to to hire some muscle looking to hire somebody to work the door at a seedy Moscow nightclub I'm just saying you could do a lot worse than Alexander Emelianenko just saying just saying he has career prospects remember that uh Bodog card that was in St. Petersburg and uh Vladimir Putin showed up oh, and yeah. sat in the front row and it was like it was like the, the the gears all turned at the same time and all clicked all of a sudden and you saw this picture of like Vladimir Putin glad handing with the Emelianenko brothers and mm-hmm. you were like hmm what does this powerful dictator type guy what could he possibly want with a couple of dead-eyed trained killers <laughs> superman russian superman <laughs> There's also the one where they had the party afterwards with Silvio Berlusconi and Van Damme. 
now sounds like an awesome party. Yeah, you know, I, I I heard the this story about it from uh, Julie Kedzie, who was also there. It sounded like a pretty good time. <laughs> ben, this week, I'm just saying, you know how you convince me that you're really serious about your MMA career and that you really want to land the biggest, most important, most lucrative, and most relevant fights for yourself? How, Chad? Well, you hire Tito Ortiz as your manager. <laughs> Nothing in the world says I'm ready to seriously and professionally negotiate in good faith like having Tito Ortiz strap on a pair of horn rim glasses and march into a room to meet with Dana and Lorenzo. But he's got a lot of MMA knowledge stuffed in that giant head of his, right? Hey, man, I'm just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's the podcast for this week. We hope you all have a very happy holiday Uh, If you're listening to this on Christmas Day, which I assume you are, putting it on the hi-fi so the whole family can enjoy it. Uh, Thanks for your continued support. The co-main event podcast, obviously, is just going to keep right on trucking into 2013. Yeah, and making zero money off of it. Actually operating at a small monthly loss. Uh, but that's it for this week. We'll be back. We'll be back next week. But this show is over. It's done. We're out. I'm just telling you. Say you owe some money in gambling debts no, I to the you, Russian man. mob, if I owe, if, and you open the door to your to your flat in Saint Petersburg, and there's Alexander Emelianenko standing there with his tattoo of death holding a baby with <laughs> got mit, got mit uns tattooed across his back. I mean, that's what I am paying yes. right there. Yeah, not a, he doesn't even have to come in the house. Can I give you my watch? Will you accept that? How about my child?